I opened the door for jokes, yeah, so what are you going to say? No, I'm not going to. So Stephen is a CMT resident, that's the Cornerstone School of Theology over in Ames, and it's just a huge blessing. That's where I go, that's where Matt was going, and it's a huge blessing for us to go there. Shane, Shane. Shane goes there. Oh, yeah, Shane sits in the back. And Shane. He doesn't sit near me, so I forget. So it's joke hour this hour. So, no, so CSC, it's an awesome opportunity to go and just dig in and learn theology. And we get to meet guys like Stephen who going to school and just really praying about if God is calling him into ministry. And then we get the opportunity to have him come over here and preach for us. And we just get some excited to hear that. So we're excited to have him here. And some of you may recognize him. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. So, Great. Thank you. Yeah, it's awesome to be here. I love Stonebridge and Boone, and it's really fun. The last time we were here, I didn't have a baby, but this time I do. So that's awesome. That's a big life update is baby Isla is here. So she's in the back. If Natalie jumps out in the middle of the sermon, it's the baby, I hope, not me. But um, No, it's great to be here. Like Joey was saying, I'm over in Ames working with freshmen, doing the School of Theology. So my shirt is a little wet today because my prescription deodorant hasn't kicked in. Um, No, I'm kidding. We had baptisms over in Ames, and I ran over and saw one of our students get baptized, and he's like this bear of a man and gave me this big hug. Um, So my joy tank is full, even if Matt said that you shouldn't have invited friends to hear me today, but that's next week, I suppose. Did you even tell people to invite people for this week? No? Okay. At least I got the third graders. What's up? Okay. <laughs> We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, journeying through this letter that Paul wrote to a church called the church in Corinth. And here's the point that we're going to see today. The question that we're going to wrestle with is, are the trivial things in your life more important than the eternal things? Are the trivial things more important to you than eternal things? So here's the situation that's going on in Corinth. In Corinth, you got believers taking one another to court in lawsuits. So someone steals land or something or cheats someone out of money. And within the church, they're taking one another to these courts doing lawsuits. And Paul is going to confront three groups of people with this situation. First, he's going to confront the church as a whole. Second, the one who is offended. And then third, the one who is offending. So three groups, the church, the one who's offended, and then the one who's offended. So I'm going to read the whole passage so that we can get kind of like an overview of it, and then we're going to look at each of those three groups, asking what was going on there, and what, how does that apply today? So, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, first group that Paul's going to confront is the church as a whole. So how was the Corinthian church putting more emphasis on trivial things instead of eternal matters? How are they at fault? So verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. Church, is there no one among you that can't try these trivial cases? Verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So this is interesting. You have two people in conflict with one another, and who is the first group that Paul goes after? The church as a whole. Usually in an individualistic society, we think, man, if you guys got problems, that's your problem. I'm doing good. I don't have tension with anyone, so I'm good. But who's the first group that Paul goes after? It's the church as a whole. This isn't just these two people's problems. It's the church's problem. So I was a wrestler in high school, and we did these awful conditioning drills called four and 60s. And so you had to run the length of three mats four times in 60 seconds, but it wasn't, and you had to do it like five times. And you had to continue to do them until everyone on the team made it in 60 seconds five times. So if one person didn't make it, the entire team had to get back on the line and do it again. And they were awful. And inevitably, I mean, weight classes in wrestling go up to like 285 pounds. So that's a lot of weight to move in 60 seconds, you know. So we ran a lot of six and six, four and 60s. But here's the point. The group was being held accountable for the individuals. That is exactly what's happening here. The group, the church, is being held accountable for what is happening between these individuals. So Paul's saying, by allowing these two brothers to take one another to court is to your shame. So how then was the Corinthian church caring more about trivial matters than eternal matters? Verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Paul's saying to the church, don't you realize that in the end, when we are reigning with Jesus, that we're going to be the ones judging the world and not just the world, but fallen angels. So why then in this life are we going to these secular courts to have judgment? Why are we letting our cases be tried by secular courts if we're going to be the ones to judge the world, fallen angels? Verse four, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So Paul's throwing some apostle sass right here. In verse 3, or 1 Corinthians 3.18, Paul's saying like, hey, look, you Corinthians, you're claiming to be wise. So if you guys are claiming to be wise, is there really no one wise enough to settle these trivial disputes? Ultimately, this is why this is a problem for the church, not just these two individuals. Brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. 
to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. The church of Corinth did not care deeply enough about church unity or their witness to non-believers. Instead, they either didn't want to take the effort to confront these two individuals or the leaders were cowards. Who has a dispute over, these men have disputes over land and money. Who has disputes over land and money? People who have land and money. These are probably rich, wealthy businessmen in the church, and the leaders of the church didn't want to confront these people because, hey, if I confront one and make one mad, then they might leave, or one of them might leave. And it was easier and safer for the leaders to say, hey, just go down to the court. They'll help you with this issue. But by not settling this dispute as the church in the church, it was to their defeat. Why? Because to have lawsuits at all is already to be defeated in the church. These conflicts were also not only hurting the church's unity, but it was also putting up obstacles to unbelievers, right? These uh, lawsuits were being held in front of non-believers. So the church cared more about not rocking the boat than the eternal destiny of non-believers. Okay, so that's what's going on there. That's the problem that the church is facing. So how, how, do, how do we do this today? What, what does this look like today? Two disclaimers. First, this is about civil matters. Paul is dealing with things that uh, are not criminal activity. It has to do with money and land. I mean, these are real, like, disputes. I mean, people are really getting cheated and money is being taken, but these are civil disputes. When there is criminal activity, it's not only wise, but it's mandatory that we go to the judicial system that God has put in place over us in the government. In fact, Paul, many times throughout Acts, is using the judicial system of Rome. He's not just throwing it all out. Second, the second disclaimer, I told Natalie I had a second disclaimer, but it wasn't my notes. I forgot what my second disclaimer is. Do you remember it, Nat? I can't. Whatever. In the car, she's like, well, what about this? I was like, that's really good. I didn't write it down. Whatever. Okay. So we're not picturing the church setting up some judicial system that is going to take the place of our government. Right? We don't want Joey with a gavel. That would be terrible, and we don't, definitely don't want Joey deciding our, all of our problems. Yes, thank you. I was hoping I'd get an amen somewhere. That was it. You don't want Joey with a gavel. You're crazy enough already. Here's the question, though. Are we as a church caring more about trivial matters than eternal ones when people who are in conflict in our church? Do you care more about the ind- your individual reputation or standing with the person that needs to be confronted, and that is keeping you from confronting them? Are you afraid that someone might leave the church if you confront them? If there's division in our church, then we are really already defeated. We have to take seriously conflict and division in our church. Do we as a church ignore tension when we see it, hoping it's just going to resolve itself because that's safer and easier? We have to care much, much more about the unity of our church and our witness to Boone, our witness to non-believers. And listen, it's going to take a lot of energy, a lot of time. Jumping into conflict is always messy, and it's always hard. It will always cost something. It will cost time. It will cost energy. But if we don't handle it, we are already defeated, both as a church and just our fellowship, our unity, and our witness to the non-believers. 
The only way that we as a church will be able to move towards conflict, care more about eternal matters than trivial matters, is if first we understand that the church costs Jesus everything. The church is Jesus' bride, and she cost him everything. He gave up his life for her. Okay, that's the church. As the church, are we caring more about eternal matters than trivial matters? Now Paul's going to turn and address both of these, these two individuals. Uh, the offender and the one who has been offended. So second, the one who is offended. Verse seven. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So how is the one who's being offended putting trivial matters over eternal matters? At the end of the day, while the hurt is real, This person cares much more about getting justice over trivial problems than non-believers receiving mercy over eternal problems. What does Paul say to the one who's offended? Why not rather be, why, why not rather suffer wrong? If someone stole money or profit was lost or you were cheated or there's a land disagreement between the two of you, why not rather be wronged? Okay, that's unexpected. Usually we think, okay, this church sends a letter to Paul and says, hey, we have this problem. Someone's cheating someone out of land. Can you deal with it? Who are the first two groups that Paul addresses? The church as a whole and the one who is offended. We would totally expect him to write back like, hey, stop cheating people, which he's going to do. But the first two groups that he addresses are the church as a whole and the one who's offended. That's unexpected. Why would Paul address these two groups first? Paul cares much more deeply about something that matters than something that's temporary. Paul's looking at the landowner and saying, is that money you were cheated out of really worth more than the eternal destiny of non-believers? Okay, in Ames we play this game. I mean, we didn't come up with it, but it's called how much money would it take? And then so you say, hey, here's the thing. How much money would it take for you to do this? And it's always funny. So a couple weeks ago, the thing was how much money would it take to cut off your non-dominant hand? So we just like talked about it for 20 minutes. Dana, our worship leader, said $1 billion because he's like, these are the money makers. Can't lose these. Mark Vance, on the other hand, $500,000 to cut off his non-dominant hand. That, that doesn't seem like enough. I'm probably somewhere in the middle of like $1 billion, 500000 probably like $999 million is where I'm at. So <laughs> seriously, I love my left hand. <laughs> It's, it's great. Paul is playing the game, how much money does it take? And he's asking the one who is offended, how much money does it take for you, how much money would it take for it to be worth a non-believer spending eternity separated from God in hell? A hundred thousand? Is that how much a non-believer's soul is worth? A hundred million? Is that how much it's worth? How much money would it take? Okay, the answer is obvious. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Wouldn't it be better to be defrauded than to put up an obstacle for a non-believer to come to faith in Christ? In fact, wouldn't it be a powerful testimony that if you were defrauded, for you to say, you know what? In light of eternity, I am not gonna take this person to court. I'm not gonna see a settlement because I care more about eternal things than trivial things. The one 
in Corinth who was offended cares much more about trivial things than eternal things. He cares much more about whether or not he gets his own justice than the unity of the church and whether non-believers will spend eternity with God. Okay, what does this look like today? Well, how do you take people to court in front of non-believers that puts up an obstacle for them to come to faith? Is it through gossip? When someone in the church hurts you, how do you respond? Does your response reveal that you care more about eternal things or trivial things? When we're offended, we lose often much more than money. We lose reputation. We lose standing in society. We lose uh, our place in community. We might lose credibility. It might be business deals. We might lose a lot. Now, does this mean that you can't confront the person? No. Paul's about to tell them, hey, settle this in the church. But what he is saying is settle in a way that shows that you care more about eternal matters than trivial matters. When you share, does this mean that you can't share with non-believers? No, you can share with non-believers the conflicts that you're engaging in. But when you share, does it communicate to them that you care more about eternal matters or trivial matters? Does it put up an obstacle for them to come to faith? Or does it help them see the relationship that we have and the ability to forgive and reconcile with one another in the church? How can we begin moving towards seeing the ways we've been hurt in this way? How do we become people that are more concerned with eternal matters than just trivial matters? How do we become people that can actually, verse 7, suffer wrong when we are wronged? Still seek settlement, but within the church and not in a way that puts up obstacles for nonbelievers. At the center of Christianity stands a man who was wronged, who was falsely accused, who was mocked, and yet remained silent. Why? For the sake of the church and for the sake of lost people. Jesus suffered wrong so that we didn't have to suffer justly. Jesus was falsely accused and yet for our sake said nothing and went to the cross. Why? So that we didn't have to suffer justly. What do I mean by suffer justly? Ultimately, God could take all of us to court and we would stand absolutely guilty before him. The verdict would be clear. We deserve to suffer for our guilt before God our rebellion before God. It would be just for God to punish us, but because of his great love for us, Jesus came and suffered our punishment so that we could get his reward. He took our bill of sin so that we could get his bill of obedience. Only when we realize that we're rich beyond dreams with heavenly riches will we be able to see the ways that we've been hurt with an eternal perspective. Okay, that's the second group, the one who is offended. So we've seen Paul confront the church, and now the one who's offended. Now Paul is going to turn to the one who is offending. So third, the one who is the offender. How is the offender caring more about trivial matters than eternal things? Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So the you at the beginning of the passage was you all, right? Y'all, the church. The you in the middle of the passage was you, the one who's been offended, and now the you in verse 9 switches to the one who is doing the offending. 
How is the offender caring more about trivial matters than eternal things? Okay, so this dispute is between two believers. And Paul is saying to a believer, you are really cheating your brother. Are you really cheating your brother out of land and money? Verse nine, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You're doing the very thing that you were saved from. You were rescued from your unrighteousness, from your sin, and now you're going back to it. Are you really gonna keep doing it without, without feeling bad about that? Don't you realize that that is what you were saved from, this list? If you sin, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are saved from these things, offender, how can you continue to do them and be okay with it? So how is the offender caring more about trivial matters than the eternal ones? By cheating someone in a business deal, what does the offender reveal? He reveals what he truly desires, money. Look at the list of sins again. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Saul Rexius, the director over in Ames, covered this passage a couple months ago, and he pointed out that of the list of sins, there is one sin that stands, is the common root of all of them, idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping something else as God. At the root of each of these sins is idolatry, saying something else is more valuable to me than God, something else is more precious to me than God, centering your life around something other than God. We know the truth in our minds, like this believer did, but functionally, we are saying that this is what I'm living for. This other God is what I'm living for. In the moment that I'm sinning, I am communicating through my actions that this is what I'm worshiping. So the offender, by being a thief, by being greedy, by swindling, by, by everything that they're doing, is showing that money is their idol. The offender is desiring money more than God in hopes that money will satisfy a deep soul need. Here's the deal with idols. Idols always overpromise and underdeliver. Each of us have deep soul needs in our heart, whether that be security or acceptance or approval, and idols always promise, hey, I'll satisfy that need like nothing else can, and then always underdeliver. The offender was hoping that maybe money promised security and safety or maybe prestige or position in society. Oh, if I just had that, then maybe I would know, dot, 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 that I'm safe, that I'm secure, that I'm approved. But in the end, money will always leave you wanting. Why? Because these deep soul needs were meant to be satisfied by no one, nothing else, no one else except God. So how's the offender caring more about trivial things than eternal? They have an idolatrous pursuit of money, possessions, things that only last here on earth instead of caring about the eternal God. They are participating in the very activities they were just rescued from. They are jumping back into the river they were just saved out of. Okay, what do we do with this? Three things. First, we have to realize that there's a God and that because of sin, we stand condemned by that God. Verse nine. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is a God, and he requires perfect obedience. That is his standard. To enter into his presence, to be saved, you have to have perfect obedience. Anyone who participates even in one thing on this list, even just once, stands guilty before God. Now you're like, wait, wait, wait. That's intense. That seems like a really high standard. How can that be? Okay, I was a part of a moped gang. (laughs) Honestly, I was. I had two mopeds, the purple ape hanger and uh, the black mamba. Great mopeds. Um, Had to sell the black mamba because I peed on it. Like I was riding and peed on it. So didn't tell the person I sold it to. Sorry. So I'm on the, in this moped gang, and I was really good about following the rules. Like, I'd stop at stop signs, stuff like that. And besides, like, the five tickets I've gotten, um, <laughs> two of them were in one, one day. There was, like, a cop, like, cam, like, video, and I didn't see it and went past it twice. Ah. Okay, I haven't gotten a ticket for, like, two years. I'm really working hard on not getting tickets. One, because they're expensive when you have a baby. Two, I really want to honor our judicial system. So I'm on this moped, and it's two in the morning on the purple ape hanger. Um, It didn't actually have ape hanger, like the handlebars that hang, but it was cool. Um, It's two in the morning, and I'm riding, and I had this way of, like, driving where I could, like, move the steering wheel a bunch when I'm riding, like, a motorcycle or something, and I don't have to put my feet down, which I really like, because then you can just keep going, and it's great. So I came up on this stop sign, two in the morning. I haven't seen a car for, like, minutes, and... Just minutes, not like hours, just, just a few minutes. I haven't seen a car. Get to the stop sign and like do my little wiggle thing, look both ways, and then just keep going, and there's a cop sitting there. So he pulls me over, and uh, he comes up, approaches me. He's like, you ran that stop sign? And I was like, yeah. I mean, it was a roll through. I didn't put my feet down, but yeah, I ran the stop sign. And he's like, well, I have to write your, you a ticket. Like, wait, 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 wait. That was the first stop sign I've ever ran. Come on. My perfect record of obedience, except for this one time. Come on. No, I didn't actually say that. But that is what thinking, what do you mean my good doesn't outweigh my bad, represents. A judge is not just if a murderer comes into the courtroom and he says, you're guilty of murder. And he says, but look at all the people that I've interacted with that I haven't killed. Come on, let me off this once. No, if you sin once, you are guilty We have an infinite God, and therefore sin against an infinite God requires an infinite payment. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You have to have a perfect record of obedience to go into God's presence. Now that immediately means that all of us are guilty. There is not one person in this room that could ever stand up to that standard of obedience. That's the first thing that we have to realize. The unrighteous, which is all of us, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the second thing that we have to realize. We have to realize that there is hope. Verse 11, such were some of you. That's powerful. I just want to stop there. This list, such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here's our hope. Through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, we have been washed and cleansed of our filth before God and now can be saved. It was all Jesus, completely by his grace. We were covered and head to toe in filth and Jesus and the Spirit washed us and sanctified us and justified us. Such were some of you. Jesus' grace is more powerful than any of your sin. There is not a single sin that you could commit that Jesus' grace is not more powerful. There is nothing in your life that God's grace could not save you from. Such were some of you. We were all in that list. But because Jesus, that list is no longer our identity. Right? Notice how that list is listed. All the things, all the titles are identity titles. Adulterers, swindlers, sexually immoral, thieves, drunkards. It's not just people who have robbed. It's thieves. These are identity markers. I am Stephen, a sexually immoral man. But now, through God's grace, I am a child of God. That is good news. That is hope. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Everything in this verse is past tense. Such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. How? Through Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. What was once my identity is now washed And now the most fundamental identity of me is that I am a child of God. No matter what your identity was before Christ, that was once you, that was once you, uh, that was once who you were, but no more. You are now a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ and his grace. Your sin is, you can never outrun Jesus's grace. Your sin is not more powerful than God's grace. Your sin is not more powerful than Jesus' blood. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. No matter what your identity was before Christ, that was who you once were, but no longer. You are now a child of God. When you put your faith in Jesus, there is nothing left to do. Jesus Christ takes away all of your sin. There is no more payment left. There is nothing left for you to do. All of these sins that once stood against you, Jesus took, and on the cross, they were nailed to the cross, and Jesus paid for them in full. Every single sin in your life has been covered by Jesus. His blood paid the infinite payment required for your sin against an infinite God. And now we are completely forgiven, but not just forgiven. We are now children of God, and there's an inheritance coming, an eternal inheritance. All of this is completely by God's grace. You are his child. You once were defined by the things on the list. You were once part of the unrighteous who would not inherit the kingdom. But now you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified through Jesus and the spirit. And you are a child of God. Such were some of you, but now you are God's child. God's grace is more powerful than any of your sins. You can't out God's grace. There is absolutely nothing that you could do that God's grace cannot forgive. Such were some of you. We all were guilty before God, but through faith in Christ, there is nothing left for us to do, but with empty hands come and say, oh Jesus, you are good. You saved me. Thank you.
there's this awesome story in the Old Testament of uh, the high priest named Joshua, and he comes into God's presence after this like long procedure, like in the Old Testament, he was the Jewish high priest, of washing, getting ceremonially ready to go into God's presence. And when he enters into God's presence, he is still covered head to toe in filth. And you're like, what? Read Leviticus, this whole ceremonially like cleaning thing. And then in Zechariah 3, Joshua comes in, and after all of his work, he is still covered head to toe in filth. And the hope in that story is that God says, okay, now you, angel, go and put a clean turban on him. Go and put a clean robe on him. Wash him. Guys, that's the picture that we have. We are people who have no ability to clean ourselves to go into God's presence, but he, through Jesus and the power of the Spirit, has washed us and sanctified us and justified us. And now there is nothing left for us to do. God's grace has done everything to save you. Thinking that there's still something left for you to do is like taking an oar onto a cruise ship. All right, Captain, where can I, how can I help? I'm ready to help. It's done. You're on the ship. God's grace does everything. He completely saved you through Jesus. There is nothing left for you to do. Okay, first we realize that we're guilty before God. Second, we realize that his grace has done everything. Third, the transformation that occurs in our life. What was the offender's problem? This is a believer What was his problem? The reality of his new identity had not transformed his life. He was not living in light of eternity. There's a pastor named Tim Keller, and he says that the truths of the gospel can't just remain truths. If they are truly grasped, fully understood, they will change our lives. Why? When you grasp that you are going to spend eternity separated from God in hell, but he has rescued you through Jesus, that will change everything. The offender was caring more about trivial pursuits here on earth and was not living in light of eternity. Listen, you have been rescued from sin and now are God's child and will spend eternity with him in heaven. As we get that, that begins to change our lives. Now the effect of sin runs deeply. That was once who we were. Now it takes a long time for that to change here on this life. And it is a process, but the gospel begins to change us. Once I've tasted brisket and KC, broccoli in Iowa is gross. That's great. When you know that there's stored up for you eternal riches that will never fade and never be ruined and the moth will never destroy, our riches here just begin to look like monopoly money. Something that's only going to last in this life, but true riches are waiting for us. When we have felt the acceptance and approval of God who knows me to my core and yet loves me more deeply than anyone else, I can be less protective about my reputation and suffer being wronged. The question is, do you care more about eternal things or trivial things? All right, let's pray. God, you are so good. We are just people who came with empty hands, covered in the filth of our sin, but through Christ and the power of the Spirit, we've been washed and cleansed and forgiven and been brought into your family, now with an eternal hope. 
And God, I pray that as we grasp that more and more, the eternal hope that is waiting for us, that it will change how we view things here in this life. That as a church, we would be a church that cares much more about the eternal destination of non-believers and the unity of the church than the potential hurt that we might face when we confront tension. God, I pray that as people hurt us, that we would rest in the acceptance and approval that we have in you and suffer being wrong so that we can have a witness to non-believers and for the sake of the unity of the church. And God, I pray that we would no longer be the offenders, but that we would let the gospel change our lives, that we would live with an eternal perspective in every area of our life. God, we love you. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ and the adoption that we have as your children.